0: Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. If you're interested in the environment and in young adult fiction, here's a podcast you might enjoy. From Gen Z Media, the Peabody Award-winning producers behind hit podcasts like Six Minutes and The Unexplainable Disappearance of Mars Patel, comes Becoming Mother Nature, When Chloe is sent off to live with her mysterious and eccentric grandmother, she learns an unbelievable secret. Grandma Ivy is none other than Mother Nature herself. And Chloe is next in line to assume the power and responsibility of the job. Can a 12-year-old learn to balance the entire world's ecosystem while just trying to fit in at her new school? Only Mother Nature knows. You can listen to Becoming Mother Nature wherever you get your podcasts. So, I recently went on a seven-day backpacking trip. Now, I've done quite a bit of backpacking, and so most of my gear is very dialed in. But one thing I've been experimenting with is my water purification system. When I through-hiked the Colorado Trail, I had one of those pump-style filters— It worked well, but it was annoying to have to crouch by water sources to filter my water. On a few subsequent trips, I used purification drops. I liked the simplicity of them, but I didn't love the taste. Basically, lake water tastes like lake water if you don't run it through a filter. On this latest trip, I brought a Sawyer gravity filter. Sawyer is one of our sponsors for this episode, and I have to say, I quite like their gravity filter. The way it works is you fill up this big water reservoir from a lake or a stream, and then you set it on a rock or hang it from a tree and attach the filter, and gravity does all the work for you. For 25% off your order, go to sawyersafetravel.com and enter the promo code OTPOD25 at checkout. And just FYI, because we have gotten some questions about this, you have to go to SawyerSafeTravel.com, not just Sawyer.com. Again, the promo code is OTPOD25. People who gravitate toward the spotlight tend to get the most media coverage. The Instagram personalities, the adventurers who hire PR people, the folks who love to talk about themselves... Those are the ones who often end up on the covers of magazines. But often, it's the people who stay out of the spotlight who have the really interesting stories. Today's episode involves a woman like that. Christine Boscoff was a high-altitude mountaineer who pushed the boundaries for women. She climbed mountains that no North American woman had ever summited. And she was the only American woman to have reached the top of six of the world's 8,000-meter peaks. She was also a well-respected guide and eventually came to be the owner of an adventure travel business in Seattle called Mountain Madness. But despite her impressive resume, Chris's story went largely untold. Until this year. This spring, a book came out called Edge of the Map, which chronicles Chris's life and her rise in the mountaineering world. Our guest today is the author of the book, a writer named Joanna Garton. Joanna is not a mountaineer herself,
1: but she does have a bit of a personal connection to Chris. We both grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin. We were three years uh, separation in age. She was three years older than me. We went to the same high school, but we actually never met, uh, which was kind of incredible. But this is how it happens in high school. You run (laughs) in different circles and whatnot. So she graduated um, before me and went off to have this unbelievable career. And I also went off and had my own life. I ended up in Denver with my family and she ended up in Telluride, Colorado with her climbing partner, Charlie Fowler. And they eventually started climbing a lot of unexplored um, areas and climbing in unexplored areas. And she and Charlie went missing in December 2006. And at that time, there was a little article in our hometown newspaper, and my mom reached out to me after reading this article and said, do you know about this woman, Christine Boscoff? She's from Appleton. So my mom, who was a writer and a journalist, became just totally fascinated with Christine's story. I mean, women from Appleton at that time rarely had the kind of trajectories in their, in their lives, both professional and personal, that Christine had had. And She uh, reached out to Chris's mom, who lived just a few miles away, and the two women forged a real friendship over the time that Chris and Charlie were missing. Eventually, Chris and Charlie's bodies were both found and recovered. They had died in an avalanche in western Sichuan province in this area where they had been climbing. And by the time Chris's body was um, recovered and, and brought home, my mom was convinced that her story was one worth telling because Chris was just a really humble, humble mountaineer and had had this really beautiful rise in a sport that she was quite passionate about. And so my mom began the process of researching and writing Chris's story. So this was 2006-2007, and mom worked on the book for about 10 years. And at that point, she had to stop working on the book because she had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, um, which is a really truly awful disease that is degenerative, and eventually she was unable to continue researching and writing and typing and whatnot. So at that point, she turned to me. I'm also a writer, and I had just published my first book and was looking for a second project, and mom talked to me about picking up where she left off and would I finish the story, and that is what I did.
0: How does it feel finishing a project that had
1: been your mother's oh my gosh it's it's emotional it's fulfilling and gratifying it is rewarding in so many ways to sort of have picked that up from her and taken the baton and then gone in my own direction in many regards but really it's essentially the same basic story so that's been fulfilling for both of us
0: really loved the story in the book of how Chris initially got
1: started climbing. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about that? Yes, yes. Okay, so this is great. So Chris went to school at University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. And she was planning to go to school to study nursing, which was kind of a very traditional career path for her. But at the very last minute, she decided that that wasn't really her passion. And she had just recently learned how to fly and decided to study aerospace engineering. So, after. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like you do. She always went full force with everything she was interested in. So, she graduated with this degree in aerospace engineering and she got a job at Lockheed in Atlanta. And was um, supervising these teams of men working on um, a C-130, I believe it was. And she did that for a few years and then, believe it or not, got a little bored. So started (laughs) looking for other outlets. Uh, And she attended a two-day climbing class in Atlanta. And the instructor was a guy named Keith Boscoff. And he eventually became her husband and her very first climbing partner and turned her on to the sport of climbing and mountaineering so chris learned chris took up
0: climbing she learned to climb from the man who would become her husband and then she became a better climber than him
1: how did that affect their relationship She did. She did. Yeah, that's a great question. And I do I do talk about this a little bit in the book and you see that happen. Um, So Keith was, I want to say 15 or 16 years older than her. So he was perfect in terms of mentoring her from that respect, because he had just a ton of experience and had already traveled all over the world by the time Chris got hooked on the sport. Um, But very quickly, it was evident that her her star was on the rise. And he was kind of at the, you know, I would say the apex of his career, maybe heading down a little bit. And I think that was very hard for him. We have a couple of I have a couple of scenes in the book where you can see his frustration, and I was able to capture that because I had both of their journals and was able to read over many passages and how frustrating it was that they wanted to stay together and continue to work on having this really powerful, strong marriage. But um, at times, it was very hard for him. uh, And I think that did cause a strain in their relationship at times, for sure.
0: What was it like going through other people's
1: diaries? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, um, I felt a little bit weird at times, I'll be honest, um, (laughs) because I was reading all sorts of things, as you can imagine. Um, But it was also really quite moving, because it helped me really understand the humanity in people who achieve such unbelievable athletic you know, um, feats, which is something that, um, something that I didn't expect. So I was able to really get insight into, oh gosh, I'd say lack of self-esteem and those sorts of issues with Chris in particular, which I did not expect to see. And so I saw all of that, both with regard to her personal life and with her professional life as well. And I was able to kind of weave that into the story, um, But yeah, it definitely made me think about all my journals, I'll be honest, (laughs) and think like, oh my gosh, I totally need to burn my journals. (laughs) (laughs) There were some interesting parts in both Keith's journals and Christine's where I stopped and I thought, oh my gosh, well, this is kind of a bombshell, but I am definitely not going to include this in the book. I wasn't really interested in writing a book that was salacious Um, Yes, but so there was a lot that I definitely had to hold back on, for sure. (laughs) We all have those things in our journals, don't we?
0: (laughs) Yes, and I'm sure that her mother is is grateful to you for not including all of them. Yes,
1: for sure, for sure.
0: In just a moment we'll talk about the criticism that a lot of female Mountaineers have faced in pursuing their work. And we'll delve into some sticky moral questions surrounding Chris's death. But first... Okay, I have been putting this off literally for months. But I think it's time to try out some counseling. The last few days, I've just I've just been really struggling, feeling depressed feeling anxious feeling like an imposter Can you relate? 2020 is a tough year One of our sponsors for this episode is a company called BetterHelp They offer professional online counseling to clients all over the world So... Here I am on their website. They ask a series of questions to match me with the right counselor. How old am I? What's my relationship status? How often do I experience problems like being fidgety or restless? (laughs) Do you feel that your mental health is being impacted by the coronavirus outbreak? Uh, Would anyone answer no to that? The questionnaire is quite straightforward and also gives me plenty of space to say anything I want to say. Less than 24 hours later, I'm matched with a counselor. If this year is hard on you too, you can get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash outthere. That's betterhelp.com slash outthere. Support for Out There also comes from Kula Cloth, a high-tech pee cloth for women and anyone who squats when they pee. Pea cloths are an excellent alternative to toilet paper when you're out in nature, and the Kula Cloth is made with antimicrobial fabric and has a waterproof backing so you don't get your fingers wet when you wipe. In between uses, you can just hang it on your pack to dry. For 15% off your order at KulaCloth.com, enter the promo code OUTTHERETWO at checkout. That's K U L A CLOTH.com, promo code OUTTHERETWO. And now, let's get back to our conversation with Joanna Garten. One of the things that becomes very clear in her book is that Chris was a woman in a man's world. And as such, she faced some real
1: challenges. That's something that is so fascinating and really integral to the story. Eventually she went on to become the sole owner of Mountain Madness. She and Keith both bought the company together, but eventually she became the sole owner. And so she definitely had professional challenges, people kind of questioning her ability, the fact that she had taken up the sport. I guess, what people would consider late in life. It was her mid-20s. That was sort of a, a constant stressor and something she felt she had to answer for. But I think the way she tended to handle it was to just sort of let it roll off of her as much as she could. She really did not want her gender to define her accomplishments. And so she would just laugh it off as best she could and try to stay true to her passion, which was climbing um, in these wonderful unexplored places all around the world but yes it was definitely ever present in her life both personally and professionally the fact that she was a rarity at that time being a a woman in those arenas
0: well and I'm sure you must have done you know in researching this book you must have done a lot of research into um just, you know, women, women in the in the field of mountaineering in general. And I'm curious what you learned, what stood out to you about, um, about gender, about how women are are viewed and treated um, in the field of mountaineering?
1: Yeah, I did. I did. You know, I definitely always found it interesting when I was talking to people, even now, and I would ask about Chris and oftentimes people would comment on how beautiful she was and her looks. And that was never anything that I was really looking for or interested in. But people kind of Oz had to add that to the conversation, which is really interesting. Um, I also found it really fascinating to go back and look at how women have been treated in terms of mountaineering and um, being mothers and how they have been judged over the years for climbing when they have children and what a disconnect there is because that question is Almost never brought up when you're talking about a male in the sport, and again, I think that's changing now, hopefully for the better, because people are having more of these conversations. Um, but it's definitely a theme that I try to bring out in the book and have people think about it, and, and people are definitely talking about that now and and that disconnect and what can be done about that in the future.
0: What's the criticism what are what why what's the criticism that people level at at mothers who climb and who are mountaineers.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think the general the general sentiment that a lot of people have is, oh my gosh, this woman is a mother and she has small children at home, so why would she take such a risk and put herself into a sport where there has the propensity to be this high level of danger and where it's possible she might not come home and therefore she will not be able to continue to mother her children? So that's kind of the general sentiment that's out there, and it's fascinating because, again, that, that never comes up when I'm reading about men who have small children, and um, it's, been very, it's been pervasive
0: because it's a valid question for for a parent like should you put should you do things that are super risky if you have small children to take care of but it seems like it would be equally
1: valid for fathers <laughs> as for yes. mothers. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And I think this is a a quote unquote criticism that people have about mountaineering and climbing in general and I think writing the book and researching the book um I have come to understand that in um A really interesting way. And the way that I like to explain it to people is that everybody has something in their life that they cannot imagine living without or not practicing, whether that's mountaineering or worshiping God or fostering pets or parenting, whatever that might be, everybody has something. We should all be so lucky, I should say, to have something like that. And for mountaineers and climbers, this truly is their passion. And so I think that criticism often comes up because there is a level of danger in this sport. And so people, I think, tend to feel they have a certain level of entitlement to criticize people who are in this sport. Um, And that's something that I just don't get. I do understand the fact that there are a different set of factors when you have families and children in the mix, Um, but ultimately I feel that people are entitled to make their own choices. I will say that I've talked to several children of mountaineers who have perished in the mountains in the course of researching um, the book, and all of them, without exception, have said, I can't imagine my mom or my dad um, not climbing. I know that I lost my parent, but that was really what he or she was doing, and if he or she hadn't fulfilled that and done that and pursued that passion— he or she wouldn't have been the same human being. So I thought that's that, that has been very interesting for me to uncover as I've as I've worked on the book.
0: So you describe Chris as being extremely modest about her skills and her abilities and her achievements. Um you know, she's, she's, she just wasn't the kind of person who gravitated toward being in the spotlight. Um, How do you think
1: that affected her career as a mountaineer? That's a good question. She was, yeah, she was extremely humble. And she had these fabulous Midwest roots, um, which I think kind of helped move that along that humility that she had and I think one of the things that created in her life was that she went through her professional life being very very under the radar such that when you bring up the name Christine Boscoff in mountaineering circles now a lot of people don't know who she was Um, I would say most people today wouldn't recognize that name now because she summited more 8,000 meter peaks than any other American woman, you know, that puts her right up there with Ed Visters, who's pretty much a household name, not just in mountaineering circles. So I think her, her humility did play out in that regard. She was able to kind of have her career be very under the radar, which I think suited her well and suited her personality well. But years and years later, um, her legacy uh, was not well known, so I'm really hopeful that by writing this book, her name will get out there a little bit more. And um, she's perhaps a little bit mortified right now, but I think it's I think it's going to serve the mountaineering community well.
0: Well, that was her time be what has it. come. Yeah. Well, and and it's I don't want to to generalize too much, but I think that a lot of um, male mountaineers probably do seek the spotlight a bit more and so then their stories get told more and they get known more and and that kind of perpetuates this this
1: idea that it's a a male thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yes exactly I think that's exactly right and we have to remember that she was climbing 20 years ago which was way before social media and so I think all of us in general are just much more out there with our lives right now. And it was not something that was happening 20 years ago. So I think that definitely added to it as well.
0: So Chris did a lot of climbing in the Himalayas, um, And in Asia, generally. Um, And uh, one of the things that you that you talk about in the book is a lot of these really deeply ingrained spiritual beliefs
1: about the mountains there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So she climbed over there, you know, for a decade or so. And I think she became somewhat aware of the spirituality of the mountains, though I think, 20 years later, she would have been much more ingrained in that and much more aware of the mountains she was climbing um, because there are many sacred peaks over in Asia that are worshipped and that I think probably now climbers are very aware of in terms of like, okay, those mountains should not be climbed. And one of those mountains was um, Ganyan Peak, Ganyan Ganyan Mountain, which is the, the mountain on which she and Charlie died in this avalanche. So, that's been, that's been a struggle, I'll say, for me to kind of come to terms with because um, I grew very attached to Chris through researching the book and writing the book. Um, but we sort of get to this point in the book where Charlie and Chris are climbing this mountain that is a sacred peak. And I think all climbers and mountaineers who approach climbs like that make different decisions. Some decide not to climb peaks like that at all. Um, out of worshipping the mountain in a deep, in a deep, deep way, others kind of decide, okay, well, we're going to climb, but we're going to stop just sort of this short of the summit, out of a sign of respect for the mountain, and others don't seem to care about that at all. So I think there are more conversations happening about that now, but at that point there weren't those conversations happening, and so Chris and Charlie climbed that mountain. Um, I'm not going to say without regard to the spirituality of the mountain, but but definitely in a different place, um, you know. 20 years ago, those conversations, as I said, weren't happening. So it'll it's interesting to me to think about what they would approach, how they would approach that climb now, and if they would have done that, if they would have done that differently. Do you think they would have done it differently now? I do. Yes, I do. I think they were very aware of nature and the outdoors and the environment, but I think in terms of the spirituality of the mountains, I don't think they had quite gotten. Um, as far as I think they would have eventually in terms of respect, um, respecting those those mountains. And honestly, it's very possible that they set out on that expedition and they had intended to climb and turn around short of the summit. That actually is very possible. Um, and that's one of those things we'll never really know because they both died on that mountain. Um, so in a way, that would have been a, a huge sign of respect.
0: So So mountains like that that are um, considered holy. What is it for the local communities there? What is it about those mountains that that make them off limits to being climbed?
1: That's a good question, and um, I know a little bit about this, um, though it's something that I definitely want to explore more. You know, there were all these rabbit holes that I fell down into in the book, um, thinking, "Oh my gosh, well, this could be a whole book in and of itself." And this is one of those. This is one of those areas. So, yes, there are a number of peaks over there which are considered holy, and I, I'm not sure initially what makes that. Um, how those mountains get that designation? But oftentimes, um, those mountains are protected by uh, monks who live at the base of those mountains in these beautiful Tibetan Buddhist monasteries. And so, there was one of these gorgeous monasteries at the ba- base of Ganyan, where there were many monks. Chris and Charlie interacted with the monks before they went off on on their climb. Um, and the monks really do feel that it is their ba- their um, their role to protect the mountain. Now. What defines protection, I think, is a little unclear, but they definitely have a great respect for the mountains, um, such that when I was over in Asia, I spent a lot of time at this particular mountain and, and with these monks who live at Lungu Monastery, and I asked them about the power of the mountain and what it was about the mountain that they loved and then I also talked at length with them about Charlie and Chris and oh my gosh they were these incredible mountaineers and they were so strong and I don't understand how they could have died on this mountain and what was it how did this all happen and they said very matter-of-factly to me that the mountain is mighty and if the mountain is not happy the mountain will send you down. And they said it very matter-of-factly and with a sense of peace, and that is just how they view um, Mother Nature and those great peaks in sacred places in the world.
0: How has learning so much about Chris's life
1: changed you personally? Hmm... I think recognizing how Chris always looked within and really stuck to the things that were dear to her, whether those were relationships that other people judged that were very important to her or personal choices or professional choices, the fact that she stuck to those and didn't let that noise affect where she was going, that's something that I think has helped me in my life and something that I hope that I I carry forward in my life always. It feels so very important to do that. Well, Joanna, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Joanna
0: Garten is a writer in Denver, Colorado. Her book is called Edge of the Map, the Mountain Life of Christine Boskov. If you'd like to check out the book, we have a link to it on our website, outtherepodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share the link with a friend. We're always looking for new listeners, and your recommendation is our best form of advertisement. A big thank you to Mike Lutters, Doug Frick, Philip Tim, and Deb and Vince Garcia for their ongoing financial support of Out There. We are an independent podcast, which means we don't have the backing of a network or radio station. We rely on listener contributions for almost half of our operating budget. So I mean it when I say we couldn't produce this show without you. If Out There makes a difference in your life, please consider becoming a patron. You can make a gift in any amount, even if it's just a dollar or two a month. Just head to patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. You can also make a one-time donation at our website or on Venmo at outthere-podcast. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Today's interview was edited by Natalia Luderman. Our strategic advisor is Alex King. Our advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Sheba Joseph is our audience growth director. Our interns are Aja Simpson, Natalia Luderman, and Kara Schaefer. Our ambassadors are Ashley White, Tiffany Duong, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. Be safe out there, and we'll see you in two weeks.